So for the last several months, we have been going through the book of Genesis. But for the next five weeks, beginning today and the four weeks that follow through the end of April, we're actually going to be stepping back from Genesis and uh, looking at some themes that are established there, and yet we're going to look at how the New Testament addresses those themes. We are not setting Genesis very far to the side. In fact, this mini-series that we're inserting here, I've entitled Regenesis. There really is a sense in which the, many of the things that are picked up in the book of Genesis are, uh, that are launched in the book of Genesis are picked up again in important ways in the New Testament. And we're going to look at a few of those. Now this morning, we're going to do so with this screen up here. This will not be a regular thing. I don't anticipate this being up here again for a long, long time. But like I said at the, uh, the uh, announcements before worship, there are quite a few verses I want to look at today. And so I wanted to be able to move through them relatively quickly and not expect everybody to be... Uh, uh, remember the sword drills? You know, Sunday school's a little kid. You know, I didn't want to have to do that, that this morning. So we'll... Uh, We'll uh, look at this uh, together up here. If you have a hard time reading them, feel free to move forward at any point. Before we begin, let me uh, pray and ask God's blessing as we take a look at this theme of life and death in his word. Lord, help us see the big picture this morning of scripture, not from one little verse or one set of verses, not from one passage, but rather as, the, as a trajectory, as an arcing theme across the pages from beginning to end. As we explore this, guide my words that they would be fitting and appropriate and true and in keeping with your message. And let us see how life and death are defined by you and how life and death are, are created and given by you. Let us understand them better as a result of this time in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our world has increasingly been pushing us to, to adopt a misunderstanding, a false view of life and death. Our world has taken, and sadly I've heard more and more in the church take this attitude, that death is just a normal part of life. That death is just the way it is. And so we don't mourn death any longer. It's stunning how many people come to me when a loved one has passed, and the first words out of their mouth in my office is, I want this to be a celebration. We don't celebrate death. Death is not something to be celebrated. Now, I understand what they mean. We're celebrating their life, and there is a place for that. That is appropriate. That should be a part of a funeral. But so, too, should mourning. For death is not natural. It is not the way things were created to be. And by the way, the world knows this. If they didn't, would they be spending the bazillion dollars they're spending trying to stop death, stop aging? 
Google, uh, what's the parent company of Google? Alphabet. That company alone is spending a gazillion dollars on trying to extend life. They've said they hope to be able to extend life at some point to five, six, seven hundred years. Because they recognize that there's no inherent biological reason why we should die. For if cells can take in nutrients, and if they can regenerate, if they can make more cells, then why would that ever come to an end? Theoretically, from a scientific viewpoint, there should be no need for death. It is hypothetically possible to live forever. So why is there death? It is something we need to consider more closely. But this morning, we're going to look particularly at how the Bible talks about these two words, life and death. Now, to be sure, the Bible uses these words in ways that we use them every day. There are, there are pages and pages and pages of the Bible. When it speaks of life, it simply means that activity that sets you apart from inanimate objects. I used to teach high school biology. I should be able to rattle all of them off. I can't anymore. Kind of sad. Take in energy made of cells, uh, maintain hypo, uh, uh, homeostasis, respond to stimuli, uh, uh, reproduce. I can't, there's two more at least. I can't think of what they are right now. Those, the Bible uses life in that kind of way, in a biological way, and it speaks of death in a biological, physical way. But what we see at the beginning and end of Scripture, and frequently in the middle as well, is a totally other view of life and death. And we're going to try to make the case today that life and death, ultimately the underlying issue in Scripture, is not biological. It is not physical. So let's take a look at some of the passages that might help us. So right from the beginning in Genesis 1, I'm going to move through some of these quickly because we've recently gone over them in our sermon series. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. So we see right at the beginning, God creates life. And here it is just mere physical life, biological life. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. I said, the Bible talks about life in a merely biological way, and here we see that. But then immediately we see something different. Then God said, let us make man, and I'll remind you that that's the name for humanity, not for males. Okay? God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And we see now that the life of humanity is different from the life of the other creatures. Again, I'll lean on that high school biology teaching experience it was amazing how the textbooks tr treated human life as being no different from other living creatures. 
but the Bible sets human life apart. So now we see, we see how here, look at how human life is connected to God in a special way. It's in his image, both male and female. And it comes directly from him in a personal way. God did not stand afar and say to the man, be alive. He did not bring Adam and Eve to life the way he brought the other creatures to life. Rather, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God came close and was intimate and personal and gave life. Human life is seen in its proximity to God and its connection to him. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And notice what's next. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Now we have to stop and recognize here that the tree of life must not be for the maintaining of physical life. For that was already taken care of in the previous sentence. The whole garden is full of trees that are good for food, that will maintain your body. This tree is somehow different. And the life associated with it is somehow different. And so we see right at the beginning of the Bible that there is clearly two different things going on under that word life. There is a physical, biological component. You need food to stay alive. Hence the trees, pears and apples and whatever else. I don't think there was broccoli because it says trees. Broccoli came as a result of the fall, okay? Fruit was paradise. But then we have the tree of life. There's something different going on there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the... uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep him. The Lord God commanded the man... Now, these are the first things God says to humanity. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So this is really interesting. We have two trees in the garden, one associated with life, one associated with death. All the other trees are about physical existence. These two appear to be about something else. There's something more going on. And I ask you this question. Is your God a God of his word? Is your God true and trustworthy? With regard to both the good and the bad. I've shared this before. While my parents weren't perfect, one of the blessings to me as a child was that they tended to be people of their word. If my dad said, I'll be at your game, he was at my game. 
pretty much come hell or high water. On the flip side, if my dad said, you're getting a spanking when we get home, <laughs> I got the spanking when I got home. My parents were people of their word. Is our God a God of his word? Well, of course you're saying to yourself, well, yes, pastor, duh. They didn't die. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So what's going on? We have a couple of options. We can abandon the idea that God keeps his word. We can twist God's word to mean something else. Or we can understand that God, when he spoke of life and death, didn't mean mere physical existence. We have already seen how the trees in the garden set the stage for a view of life and death that is not merely physical. And I would point out to you that when they, eat of, when they ate of the tree associated with death, they died. He kept his word. They died. Life, as God was setting it forth, ceased for them. Physical death then becomes the outward manifestation and warning of real death. Physical death becomes the outward manifestation and warning of real death. We need that physical death to remind us of the matters of life and death. It's why they were kicked from the garden. So they don't eat of the tree and live forever. They don't exist forever in this state. For if there is no physical death, they will not understand what their existence was really supposed to be about. That's why Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one, God, his Father, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now we see death become a theme in the scriptures. Cain rose up and against his brother Abel and killed him. Lamech said to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Even in chapter 5, I, I've got quotes from 4 and 6 here. Even in chapter 5, one of the themes we saw was, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death becomes a theme for humanity. In contrast to that, God intervenes with Noah and opens up a co- I'm not going to quite, I'm going to stop short of calling it a covenant of life, but it's a covenant of less death. It's a covenant of I will pull back from killing things. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature. Never again shall all flesh be cut off. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. And we begin to get this hint, this suggestion that God is going to do something about death. 
And then we see Abram enter the scene, and this is where we were just a couple weeks ago. Now the Lord said to Abram, go to the land that I will show you. Now, I can't, I'm not going to go to all the verses and develop this fully, but we know if we stand back and look at Scripture in the big picture, while this only hints at what the land will be, eventually more and more and more about that land is revealed. And that land is described as a good land, a prosperous land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It is to be a land where it would be easy to live, where life, will be provided by God. And I will make of you a great nation. Many lives will come from you. And I will bless you, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to bless you with a lot of lives, and then I'm going to bless a lot of other lives through you. And God's concern for life begins to seep into the pages more and more clearly. And yet, immediately upon God coming to Abram, he and his family and his children and grandchildren after him are constantly beset with threats against their very existence, their very lives. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. And one of the things we've got to recognize is God is teaching his people. I promised you life... So why are you under the constant threat of death? There's a couple of things going on. One, it's a reminder that life is associated with God. It's not inherent. God, the life of God's people is somehow different. Let's take a look at some of the more examples. Um, this one's ironic in Genesis 13. The land could not support Abram and Lot while they were living side by side because their possessions were so great they were not able to live alongside one another. Isn't this interesting? Their wealth was getting in the way of their living. Hmm. And we see something else interesting happen in the pages of Genesis. Now Sarai was barren. Rebecca was barren. Rachel was barren. Not only is there the threat of death to these people that God has chosen, but there is a constant theme of them not able to produce life on their own. Maybe that's a clue. They cannot generate the life God has promised them. Constantly they are dependent upon God to provide the life he promised. And then something amazing happens. Finally, Sarah conceives uh, and bore Abram a son in his old age. And the very next chapter, what do we see? And after these things, God said, Abram, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Kill your son. And, then we'll, and we'll develop this more fully when we come back to this passage. But the, the, the message is this. It's that the promises of life are going to be fulfilled when you walk in obedience. Even when it seems completely backwards. I've got to pick up the pace a little bit here. Oops, jumped ahead, sorry. Um, 
we see the constant thing. Well, Isaac's sons, uh, Jake, uh, Esau, or Cain, I'm sorry, Isaac's sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, are constantly threatening each other. They're constantly threatening to repeat the sin of Cain and Abel, kill each other. And then Jacob's boys, uh, the 12 sons, they threaten to kill one another. And then there's another famine, and they're back in Egypt. And we see this ongoing theme of death or threats of death to the people of God. And then we pick up, for the rest of the Old Testament, this theme of life and death is largely corporate, and we're going to go a little faster now. Then there's a threat to Israel's life. Exodus opens with Pharaoh killing their babies. Now notice the pattern here. But then God sends Moses, appears on the scene, to provide hope of life. And then there's a threat to Israel's existence at the Red Sea. But then God provides that Moses can part the sea. And then there's a threat to Israel's existence and life when they get on the other side of the sea and there is no water, but then God makes water flow out of the rock, actually out of the rock and also turns bitter water uh, sweet, uh, non-potable to potable. Uh, then there's a threat to Israel's life when there is no food, but God sends manna and quail from heaven. We see the pattern here of the, ex- the, the threat to your physical existence in this world. God is taking care of it at every turn. There's the threat of, to Israel's life when the Amalekites attack, but Moses' upraised arms carry the day, carry them to victory. So after all of that, they arrive at the border of the promised land. And they say to themselves, those dudes are big. We can't take it. And they lose sight of the lessons that have been taught that your life does not depend on you or the things of this world. Your existence with God, your relationship to God, your connection to God, does not depend on what's going on in the world around you. It's from God. And God is furious. And he says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And what happens? This is only one example of this. This happens several times. But Moses said, please pardon the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Their relationship with God goes uh, uh, off track and God is going to destroy them for that. And a mediator intervenes to sustain them, to keep them right with God, to keep them alive. Now let me kind of fast forward here. We have the wilderness and the conquest time. You know, their their shoes don't wear out. They always have food. God takes care of their lives despite the threat. They get into uh, Canaan and despite the walls of Jericho and the other threats, God overcomes all of those threats for them. Get into the book of Judges. And there's an interesting comment right at the end of Joshua. For as long as Joshua lived and for as long as the elders who outlived Joshua, the people did what was right. They walked in the ways of the Lord. They obeyed him and they were faithful. But then, once that, remember in the time in the wilderness, that training time, that learning to understand and believe and trust God, 
Once that group of elders died off, the people returned to their natural ways. And their lives are constantly threatened. And we have the cycle throughout the judges. They, they turn from the Lord. They walk away from Yahweh. They serve the Baals. And then God sends an oppressor to threaten their existence. He then, they call out to the Lord. He then provides a judge to rescue them. Eventually, they get tired of this and they say, we don't want occasional judges. We want a king over us all the time. And Saul's put in place. But then it's very interesting, at the end of Saul's life, he's being attacked by the Philistines and he's losing the war. And rather than risk losing the war, he commits suicide. And we always tend to think the Sunday school version of this, oh, then David became king. No! There's at least two years of civil war. Ishbosheth became king. And there's infighting. And the people are at risk of dying. And the Philistines see the moment of weakness, and the Philistines redouble their attack. And then God raises up David. And then something amazing happens. David takes the throne. You think everything's great, right? No, his own son Absalom usurps the throne and drives David into the wilderness. And again, there's another civil war. David is then reestablished. He extends the kingdom. Solomon, his son, extends the kingdom. And everything looks wonderful and great. The temple is built. It's the high watermark of the kingdom of God on earth. And then from there, everything begins to go downhill. The split after Solomon. Syria invades twice. Assyria takes the north, utterly destroying it, hauling its people off, and takes all but one city of the south. You know, we read the book of, we read about the account of Hezekiah in Isaiah and in Kings, and we think, oh, look at how Hezekiah trusted the Lord and uh, Jerusalem was saved. That's it. That's what they've become. The victories of David killing 10,000 Philistines are long past. They're not conquering and extending the land. They're barely holding on to one city. Their existence is down to almost nothing. And then Babylon takes that one city and raises it to the ground, tearing down its walls and burning its temple. And they go into exile for 70 years. And then there's this little glimmer of hope. It ain't much, but Cyrus says they can return home. You think, oh, it's all going to be great. No, only a tiny fraction of them return home. Most of them stay in Babylon. They'd rather have the comforts of this life than what God had promised for his people. We see this struggle. Are the people of God going to go out of existence? Are they going to die out? They get back to the land. All their efforts to rebuild are impeded. Finally, they get the temple built. You say, oh, the temple's built. Look, at they're on their way back. It's if you remember the account... Many of the older folks in the crowd were crying. Why? Not out of tears of joy, but rather because this new temple was pathetic and lame compared to the old one. This wasn't a restoration of a wonderful existence. This was not the new Jerusalem promised by Isaiah. This was not the kingdom of God of which Zechariah had prophesied. The walls are rebuilt but it doesn't do much good. 
because the, after the Persians lose their time, the Greeks take over under Alexander in 322. Um, the Greeks actually get pretty nasty with them, and eventually a, a, a descendant, not a descendant, but a, a successor, there we go, of Alexander, Antiochus uh, 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 Epiphanes, he, uh, he uh, desecrates the, the temple and forbids their worship, requires them to worship the Greek gods. Things are pretty bad. There's a moment of a glimmer of hope. Judas Maccabees starts a rebellion, but even after he wins the victory, it's a mess. There's infighting. There's factions. This is when the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the, the, the Zealots all begin to appear. The nation is breaking apart from within. It's not a particularly great time. And then Rome comes in, and things look pretty bleak. Quick review, quick summary. So God creates all life. Mankind's life is a, of a different kind, connected to God in a special way. There is a tree of life in the garden, not needed for food. That is, not needed for physical life. And after eating the tree which brings death, physical life continues. And so we're, we're forced to conclude that life and death in Eden were not physical. And yet the life of Abraham's chosen family is uniquely connected to God becomes a picture of how their physical existence becomes a picture of what life ought to be when you're connected to God and what it, the risk when you're not. And of course, the same becomes true of the nation of Israel. Life is not merely existence, but rather it is existence connected to God. That becomes the working definition of life in the Bible. Life is existence rightly connected to God, rightly aligned with what God wants. And death becomes existence at odds with God. And it is in the midst of that, that type of thinking, that the Apostle John, probably near the end of the New Testament era, opens his book with these words. In the beginning. And what is he trying to recall to mind? He's clearly echoing Genesis. He clearly wants us to recognize that there's a new creation happening. There's a re-Genesis happening. And what does he say about it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis opens up with, in the beginning, God. He opens up with, in the beginning, God and the Word. The Word and God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. John opens his gospel by proclaiming life. He closes his gospel by telling us why he wrote. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So when John writes that, what does he mean by life? Well, let's take a look at, remember, you're, you're going to say, well, but Jesus said these things. I know Jesus said these things. But it's John who's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the gospel. It's the message of John, by the Spirit, wants us to hear. That's why he selects things that the other gospel writers didn't include. 
because he wants to communicate a certain message. And the theme, by the way, if you do a New Testament search on the themes of life and death, John's writings bury the rest of the New Testament in terms of the frequency of those. John wants you to understand life. And so he tells us about Jesus meeting with Nicodemus. None of the others tell us this. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is making the simple point. Your mere physical existence isn't what it's about. Nicodemus, you're walking around, you're talking, you're eating, you're taking in uh, food, you're using energy, you're made of cells, you've got all the, re- the biological definition of life, and you're not alive. You need to be born. Clearly, there's something different about the life Jesus speaks of. He meets, uh, what does he go on to say to, to, to to Nicodemus later, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. More on that in a moment. Then we see him with the woman at the well. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This theme of life John 5, John 6, I can't do all of them. This can be, you know, John 6, you know, uh, uh, my body is life. Whoever eats my body and drinks my blood will have life. These become common themes. Uh, uh, This one's interesting in John 5. uh, uh, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Look down at the bottom there, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed, has passed, present tense, it's accomplished, it's done, has passed from death to life. Now, John writes this at a time when most of his fellow apostles are dead. John doesn't for one moment believe that this was a promise that you would avoid physical death. And yet he writes as though you've, he, present tense, has passed from death to life. It's done. You're alive. Even though they're dying, by the way. Jesus says exactly that to Martha, does he not? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Life and death in the scriptures are not physical, biological statuses. They are altogether something else. Paul picks up the same theme. Uh, Romans 5, uh, sin reigned in death. Not sin reigned uh, 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 by means of death, but rather in the midst of death. Sin was in reigning. But then eternal life, you know, but uh, uh, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's two different states of existing in your relationship to God. You're either in sin and therefore in death and under its reign, or you are in grace and you are under the life that's found in Jesus Romans 8 says something really stunning. For to set the mind on the uh, to set the mind for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
Notice he doesn't say it will become. It will lead to. It is. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. Walking is a, is a frequent New Testament metaphor for life, going about your daily business. Here, it couldn't get any more clear than this. Here is the contrast. You were dead and you were alive at the same time. There's clearly two things going on here. And you were following the course. I'm not going to read all of this. Uh, uh, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Then we get down to uh, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In the midst of death, there is life. And in the midst of life, biological, physical life, there can be death back at the top of that passage. Clearly there's something else going on. And then what did we see in our New Testament reading? This begins at the beginning of Revelation, but it picks up at the end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And now we see this new term. As we get to the book of Revelation and the close of the New Testament and look forward to what awaits the church and all the people of the world, there is this new idea of a second death. And it defines it. This is the second death, the lake of fire. In other words, hell. And what do we see about that? It's thrown into the lake of fire and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. They shall go into everlasting torment. Death cannot be the end of existence. For if existence ends, then there is not everlasting torment. There is not torment day and night forever and ever. There is not punishment of eternal fire. Death cannot be the end of existence. But rather, death becomes in the Bible the moment where your the nature of your existence is locked down for all eternity. When you pass off this globe, however you lived here biologically will be how you live for all of eternity. However you existed here in relationship to God will be how you exist in all of eternity. If your existence here was at odds with God, however peaceable it might have been at times, however good it might seem, your eternal existence, the second death, will be eternally at odds with God. with every ounce of grace removed, with every bit of mercy set aside. Only his wrath, only his righteousness, only his purity and the fierce anger that generates against those who defy him. We have to understand that. Our physical death is not the end of our existence. 
It simply seals for all of eternity the nature of our existence. Where you stand in relationship to God, where your loved ones stand in relationship to God when they die, is where they will be for all time. That relationship will continue. But it's not just in death, but an everlasting life as well. So that if you are in this life in a fitting and good and right relationship to God, one in subordination to him, one in keeping with what he has commanded, obeying his son, believing his son, following his son, having the right relationship, then that will, and, and however imperfectly in this life, that will be made perfect and purified and realized fully in the next life. So that those who are existing in a state of death right now will have death perfected for all of eternity. But those who are existing in a state of life now will have that life perfected for all eternity. We have to understand this idea. For it is central to the scriptures. It is central to God's message to us. That in him is life. And we, by believing him, may have that life. In the coming weeks, we will look more closely at some of the details and consequences, and we will flesh this out more fully. We will, on Easter Sunday, look at the life renewed and restored in the resurrection. And we will bring this to a conclusion at the end of April and jump back into Genesis in May. Let's close now in prayer. Lord, teach us about life and death. Help us to understand how it works in your word. Help us to uh, uh, understand that death is an existence out of accord with you and your word. And life is an existence aligned with you and your word. Help us to choose life. Help us to align ourselves through Christ our Savior and to align ourselves through the law which has been given as a guide for us so that we might live life now as you intend and look forward to life eternal. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.